and I, I do think about it. It's uh, I guess we were all reminded this week that it was a year when all this started, right? You know, you kind of think about where you were and and what you were doing, and it seemed like it seems like it's been more than a year, doesn't it? Seems like a long year. I appreciate something that Christine said. Uh, she said these folks are taking an active step in their faith journey. I want us to think about that for a minute. An active step in your faith journey. And I think we have to always, wherever we are in our faith journey, be taking active steps. Because if we don't take active steps in our journey, we can get, it can get to, to be just commonplace, right? We can get stagnant and we need to be reminded of that. Now, did anybody else notice, was she holding a coffee mug that said Chicago on it? Anybody else notice that? Okay, I just, I was just, I'm, I'm observing about things like that. So I'm thinking, a girl from Fayetteville, Georgia, is drinking tea out of a Chicago mug in Nottingham, England. Did I say that right? That's, that's pretty diverse right there, isn't it? That's a very multicultural, I would say. So we're very thankful. I almost said proud, but Jim Dyer wouldn't like that, our former minister. Very thankful for what this church has been able to put into her life, and she has continued that and is doing what God's called her to do. So we're very grateful for Christine. Well, in the last few weeks, we have been looking at the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God that we read about in the Gospels, and uh, that Jesus described to his disciples and ultimately to us and to the world and all those people he taught specifically in that first century. And the parables... And examples and concepts that he has presented to people, presented to us through the Gospels, have been about this kingdom. And there's been things that he used, examples, parables, um, concepts. And we think about those that we've looked at in the last few weeks. We've talked about seeds going into various types of soils and growing. We've talked about letting weeds grow up when you plant some uh, wheat, that you just let those weeds that an enemy planted, you just let those grow right in the middle of it. We talked about a hidden treasure that was found in a field and that someone felt like that treasure was so valuable they were willing to sell everything in order to keep it. We talked about a pearl of great price that was worth selling everything this man had to get that pearl of great price. We talked about a tiny mustard seed that is the smallest seed, but yet when it's planted, it grows to be this huge bush where birds come and perch in it and live in it. And we talked about yeast that works through this massive um, batch of dough, like a baker would make lots and lots of bread. And we talked about a dragnet that goes through the lake, goes through the water, and picks up everything in its path. And then last week, we talked about the kingdom of heaven is like this little child, a little child that can really offer nothing but complete dependence on its parents. And so all along the way, Jesus has been presenting the kingdom of God and using these illustrations and using these parables and these concepts. And if you were writing a book, if you were going to make a movie, and uh, I was talking to uh, somebody this morning, Bobby, um, uh, Mullis, who works downtown at this big hotel at the Century Center, I believe, and he, he talks about, you know, they're making a movie there and all the things that are going on. And y'all have seen in our state, especially in this area, movies are being made everywhere, aren't they? I mean, this has become the movie capital of the, of the world almost now in Georgia. And I think about all the things that are going on, but if you were making a movie about a powerful kingdom that's going to transform the world 
All those concepts that Jesus used in the Gospels, we go, that wouldn't make a good movie. Little seeds, a little child, all those things, that wouldn't make a good movie. That wouldn't make an exciting book, would it? But yet, that's exactly what Jesus used. He used those seemingly weak things, those small things, those seemingly insignificant by the world standards things to present how God's kingdom is and how it works and how it grows. And we've also seen these characteristics that Jesus, and I've said this over and over again, but I think it's important for us to get this, that Jesus weaves these certain characteristics through all these parables and through all these stories. And one of them is is that God's kingdom is inclusive to all of humanity. And it is certainly mysterious. When we hear about all these stories, it works in mysterious ways. We know that. We have our own stories about how God has worked in our lives in very mysterious ways. But it is actually present and working in and around the world whether we understand it or not. And it works and it grows even in hostile, even in environments that are um, evil, where that is obviously present, God's kingdom can still work in those environments. And it consistently calls for a response from me, from you, from everyone that confronts or experiences the kingdom of God. It calls for us some sort of a response. And when we say, well, I'm just going to wait, I'm not going to respond, well, then you're responding. Your response is the negative one or you're not going to accept it. So our text today will probably, again, maybe make us scratch our heads and go, Is that right, Jesus? Are you sure about that, Jesus? But I think it certainly is. And so we're going to look at Matthew 18, and I'm going to look at verses 12 through 14. I think we have a little more. We have 10 through 14 up there, but that's fine. So you remember, we're going to pick up where we left off last week, and Jesus put the little child in front of the disciples and said, and he made him come and stand right before him and said, the kingdom of God, if this is what you have to become like a little child, and they're kind of going, like a little child. But so he kind of takes from that and he says what uh, he talks about specifically, see that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven, which always tells us something about God and angels and children. You think about that, it's interesting. So he's kind of going from that into this story. He says, what do you think? Because again, I keep thinking as Jesus is teaching, like I've mentioned before, when he sees On the face of people not understanding, he gives them something else. He keeps giving them something until they finally figure it out. And I I know a lot of y'all have been teachers or you've been instructors and you think about that. When someone's not getting it, you keep giving them illustrations until you finally see them go, I get it. So Jesus says, what do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the 99 on the hills and go look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he is happier about that one sheep than about the 99 that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. It's a beautiful story. It's a story we've heard before. We think about leaving 99 sheep to go after one. Now, when you think about that from a shepherding perspective, does that even make sense? Well, it's a beautiful story. It's a beautiful concept. But in the world of shepherding, does that really make sense? Now, you think about someone who has sheep, whether you have 100 or if you have 20. If you have 20 and you lose one and that's your livelihood, well, that is important to you. That's a part of your flock. You've raised those those sheep, those lambs, and they're important to you. But is it practical, Jesus, to leave 99 sheep to go after one? You still got the 99. Is it really 
a good idea to leave those by themselves. That's a risk, isn't it? It's risky. Something could happen to the 99. Then you come back and you've lost 20 more because they ran off when you weren't there. Even maybe he's saying, well, someone else will watch them for you. Like maybe there's other shepherds among this 100. Maybe it's not just one. There's several. Say, hey, can you watch them while I go after this one? Maybe so. But maybe or maybe not. But does the shepherd, it might depend on if the shepherd actually owns these sheep. Are they his 100 sheep? Or is he just a hired hand and there's somebody else's sheep? And so do you really care about those sheep like the one who actually owns them or actually raises them do? And Jesus talks about this in John's gospel. In John chapter 10, it's a famous passage that most of us have probably heard before. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, talking about himself. And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and he cares nothing for the sheep. But Jesus is telling us, I do care about the sheep because they're mine. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. Jesus is making clear here that he cares about the sheep. They're his sheep. He's willing to lay down his life, and he's given us an indication of what he's about to do in his own life as we go through the Lenten season. Well, again, it's a great story when it is someone else that takes the risk to go after the one and leaves the 99. Somebody has to do that. When we hear the story, we go, that's great. I'm glad you did that. I'm glad you're going to let the 99 stay there, and you're going to go after the one But that's your risk. That's not my risk. And in Luke's gospel, he records this in chapter 15. And I want to encourage y'all to read that maybe this week, maybe later today. Go to Luke's gospel, chapter 15, and there's a whole series of three in a row of lost parables. There's the lost sheep. There's the lost coin. And then probably a lot of our favorites is the lost son. I love the story of the prodigal son, the lost son. And really, it's a story about two lost sons, if you really think about it. But Luke records this, and Jesus talking in terms of a lost sheep. And he says, when that sheep is found, you put it on your shoulders. The shepherd puts it on his shoulders and carries it back. And there's great rejoicing because even though we still got 99, we missed one. And now it's back with everybody, and we rejoice. He talks about we have to rejoice when one is lost has been found again. And then he talks about, in that same gospel, about a coin. A lady loses a coin that she has. She has other coins, but he talks about a denarius, which is a whole day's wages. And you go, well, that's not that big of a deal. But in that time, in that period, if you are scrimping for everything you can get, that one coin means a lot. And it says she turns, lights the candle and she sweeps the house and cleans up everything till she finds that lost coin. And when she finds it, she goes and tells all her neighbors, I found it, I found it. Anybody ever had that situation where you've lost something and you found it, how great it is? My daughter, uh, for Christmas, bought this really expensive pair of uh, these AirPod things, you know, that are wireless. And she spent a lot of money on them because I'm like, yeah, you're not getting that for Christmas. (laughs) So she saved up her own money and she bought them. And within two weeks, what, what do you think happened? She lost them. She sure did. So she, I said, have you been through your room? And she even has, even has, you know, they're, they're wireless. So 
you can hit your phone and it'll tell you where they are. And it said they were in her room, but y'all can imagine teenagers' rooms, okay? So, and then finally, it lost the power. They weren't charged anymore, so you couldn't see. So they're in that room somewhere. So she went through a room. Her mom went through a room. But then, dun-dun-dun, dad walks in. And I said, I said, on my day off, I'm finding these things. And she said, the last time I remember, I fell asleep on my bed, and I put them in their little case. And you know what? What do, they, what do you call those things? The, it's, it's like a bed skirt. There's a name for it. What is that? Thank you, dust ruffle. Okay, there it is. All right. So anyway, so it had fallen in there, and it, I was reaching, I was looking under the bed, but it was like in the dust ruffle had dropped down. The weight of it was just hanging near the mattress, and there, there it was. And so I was the hero that day. I found it. But she was, she rejoiced, and I think about it. We rejoiced when we find something that we thought was long, because she thought, I saved all my money for this expensive thing, and now it's gone. And she, we found it again. So we understand that joy when we've lost something. And Jesus knows that people understand that. But think about that. AirPods. We will rejoice about that. A sheep. That, that's a little more personal. We have pets that we adore. And that's important. But Jesus is really not getting about money and coins and AirPods. He's getting to what? People. People that are lost, that's the most important thing. That's what all these illustrations are pointing to. And those are the most important thing, but sometimes. So he gets to that story, and again, I want you to read it, and y'all know it, about a lost son, or maybe two lost sons, because the one lost son who ran off and squandered everything his dad had given him, he comes back, and what did they do? This audience is going, you don't rejoice and have a party for a kid who acted like that? Jesus goes, actually, God does. He's that excited when they come home. Doesn't mean that doesn't matter. He'll deal with that later, but it's been forgiven. I'm just so glad you're home, and they rejoice. But somebody wasn't happy. There was another son who was probably even more lost because he couldn't rejoice in his brothers coming home. All the servants did. Everybody else in the house was part of the thing, and he's going, where's where's the older brother? He goes, seriously, you're having a party for him? He could not rejoice. He could not rejoice in someone who was lost being found. And sometimes I think Jesus is saying we need to always keep that in mind that there are lost people and we need to be going after them. And when they do come home, we rejoice with them. He does not receive the lost sheep, his brother, with rejoicing. This brother is resentful. He's bitter. He's jealous. And in doing so, guess what? He's resentful and bitter and jealous and rejecting of the father himself. And sometimes that's what we do when we reject others. We're not just rejecting that person. We're rejecting their father, who is God. And sometimes we can care more about the lost things and animals than we care about lost people. A lot of y'all know who Eugene Peterson is. And he notes that it's, uh, I think he's passed away now, but he wrote a lot of uh, devotional books. I think he was responsible for um, the paraphrased version of the Bible called The Message. But he writes this... He says, it's very easy for us to look at the grandeur and beauty of the mountains or to bask in the warmth of the spring sun and recognize the beauty of all of the creation that's around us. Yet sometimes in the midst of all that, we ignore people that are right in front of us, that are all around us. And he writes this. He says, several years ago, one of my students who lived in a distant, uh, lived a distance away and rode a crowded bus every morning to college said to his wife as he went out the door one morning, I'm just going to go out and immerse myself in God's creation today. The next day, his parting words were the same. On the third day, she called back to him, Don't you think you ought to go to class today? 
And he says, a couple of, she said, a couple of days of walking in the woods or on the beach or whatever you're doing, don't you think that's enough? And he says, oh, I've been going to class every single day. Then what, she said, is this business about immersing yourself in creation? He says, well, I spend 40 minutes on the way to school on the bus, the public transportation. And then on the way back from school every day, I spend 40 minutes on that same bus. Can you think of a setting more thick with creation than that? All these people created, created in the image of God, created male and female. And his wife said, I never thought of that. Now, if you've ever been on a crowded bus, it's, it's kind of awkward, isn't it? You know, depends on, on who you're with. And most of the time it's strangers, but there's all kinds of different people there. And Peterson concludes, we need to embrace the people around us with the same delight as we do the hawks soaring above us and the violets blooming at our feet. Men and women, children and the elderly, the beautiful and the plain, the blind and the deaf, amputees and paralytics, the mentally impaired and the emotionally distraught, each a significant and sacred, sacred detail of nature of God's creation. It's a pretty good observation, isn't it? And sometimes we forget that. We see people sometimes as barriers to what we're doing. Sometimes we feel like they just in, inhibit us from what we want to do. And how do we value people most of the time is how we feel valued. Is that not true? How we value people a lot of times says how we are valued ourselves. If we fail to grasp the truth that we're valued, we have value, we've been made in the image of our creator, God the Father. If we're loved and valued, then we love and value others. But if we struggle to believe that we're loved and valued, then we're probably going to not value and love other people because we don't feel good about ourselves. So I want to ask you something. If you if I forced you to do this, if I forced everybody to say, I want you to go home this week and I want you to write down just 100 people that you think you've known over the years. We could probably do that if we really worked, 100 people. Out of 100 people, think about on that list, somewhere in that list, you had to pick one person to try to reconnect with that you haven't reconnected with in years and find out where they were. How hard would that be? Would you even want to do that? Or how about if you could say somebody in your in your realm of knowledge that you've known over the years right now, who is it that you know that is lost, but maybe you gave up on a long time ago and said, they're just lost. There's nothing I can do about it. I guess, you know. Or who have you decided is not worth leaving the safety and confidence of where you are now to go after the one? Think about that. And I think about Christine this morning, and I think about missionaries in general, and I think about Martha Wade and other people that we support, how they left the comfort of their own country and their own home and the things that were familiar to them to go to another place to bring the message to people who were lost. They get exactly what Jesus is talking about here. They chose to leave and say, I'm not going to stay in the safety and the comfort zone of where I am, but those people are lost, and I want to take what I've found to them. Or you may say, hey, that person chose to leave. And I get this way too, y'all. I have this same attitude sometimes. Hey, they chose to leave. You reap what you sow. Isn't that in the Bible? They're the ones that decided to leave. They know the way home. It's up to them to come back. But in God's kingdom, that's not how he puts it, is it? We're supposed to leave those who are home and comfortable and okay and go after those who are lost. What if God had said that when we strayed? 
Hey, it's their own fault. They're on their own. They know the way home. What if God had stayed with the old covenant and says, you got to earn your way through keeping all the rules? What if he had kept the old covenant? Where would we be, y'all? We would be lost, wouldn't we? Because we can't. We never could keep all the rules. When you think of all the Old Testament heroes, did any of them keep all the rules? No. Moses, the guy who God gave him to, he didn't get to go into the, the promised land because why? He broke the rules. Moses needed a savior just like we. Moses was just as lost as any of us were. And he needed that Savior that was to come. What if God had said that instead of allowing Jesus to go to the cross? But Jesus and God didn't say that. Jesus told Nicodemus one night exactly what God said and what he thought about lost people. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish, like Jesus is saying in this passage, I don't want any of them to perish, but that they might have eternal, everlasting life. God made a way where all could believe and all could receive. And this concept of lost sheep that Jesus is talking about to these first century people is the very same kind of things that the law and the prophets talked about hundreds of years before. And Jesus is just repointing those people back to what the prophets said. I want to read a passage from Ezekiel. And if you've ever, ever read Ezekiel, he's got some really weird things in that whole path. It is. I see some of y'all shaking your head. At the very beginning, you think, is that a UFO? What is that? And the whole dry bones thing is an amazing thing. If you haven't read that, some of you go, what in the world are they talking about? I hope it piques your interest and you'll go read Ezekiel. It'll take you a while. But he was this prophet that during the first wave of the punishment of Israel going into captivity in the Old Testament, he was proclaiming to them, "This is we're here because of our sin, because we forsook God and that covenant that he made with us. It's our fault. But God has this alternative hope for the future. He's not going to leave us lost. He's got something better for us in the future. Listen to what he says, and listen to the imagery of a shepherd. This is from Ezekiel 34, and I'm going to read from verses 2 through 6, and then I'm going to skip over a little while, a little further down in that passage. This is what the sovereign Lord says, Woe to you shepherds of Israel who only take care of yourselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? You eat the curds, clothe yourselves with the wool, and slaughter the choice animals, but you do not take care of the flock. You have not strengthened the weak or healed the sick or bound up the injured. You have not brought back the strays or searched for the lost. You have ruled them harshly and brutally. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And when they were scattered, they became food for all the wild animals. My sheep wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. They were scattered over the whole earth and no one searched or looked for them. Man, that scares me as being a minister. And supposed to be a shepherd. But he's pointing to saying, hey, those priests in that day, and now Jesus is pointing to this again about the shepherds. The shepherds, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, were not really being shepherd. Did you hear that in there? You're harsh. You're not trying to bind up the injured. You have not brought back the strays or searched for the lost. And Jesus comes in and says, that's what you're supposed to do. And then listen to what he says in verse 11 through 16 of Ezekiel 34. For this is what the sovereign Lord says, I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. As a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he is with them, so I will look after my sheep. 
I will rescue them from all the places where they were scattered on the day of clouds and darkness. I will bring them out from the nations and gather them from the countries. I will bring them into their own land. I will pasture them in the mountains of Israel, in the ravines, and all the settlements in the land. I will tend them in a good pasture, and the mountain heights of Israel will be their grazing land. There they will lie down in good grazing land, and they will feed in a rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. Sounds like the the 23rd Psalm, doesn't it? And then he goes on, I myself will tend my sheep and have them lie down, declares the Sovereign Lord. I will search for the lost and bring back the strays. I will bind up the injured and strengthen the weak, but the sleek and strong I will destroy. I will shepherd the flock with justice. It sounds like Jesus talking about being the good shepherd. I will go find the lost. And God did ultimately. He sent Jesus to do that in the flesh. I'm not just talking about it figuratively, God says. I'm bringing a Savior that will bring back those strays to their Father. And again, this is not just a pretty picture God is speaking through Ezekiel. It's not just a, a, a sentimental thing that Jesus is saying in the gospel here through Matthew. It's action. It's action. And I think about how God uses all of us to bring back the strays. And so I want to just share as I close this morning with a a story about a father. This is a true story. A San Diego man lives in San Diego, and his son had been had left home years ago, and he knew he was in trouble. He knew he had addiction problems, and he had heard that his son was, he had gotten word that his son possibly was in Denver, Colorado, and a heroin addict on the streets and homeless. So he contacted a guy named Chris Connor who was one of the leading homeless advocates in Denver. He somehow got in touch with him and says, I'm trying to find my son and this guy. I know people call me all the time. Parents are trying to find their kids. And so he helped him, and he says, I've, I've, I've always helped a lot of parents, but I've never had a parent who necessarily went this far to descend into homelessness himself to find his child. So Connor connected the father with a, a pastor named Jerry Hirships, whose church served on a daily basis lunches to homeless people across from the state capitol. So the father describes the day he went to Denver and he's looking for his son and he sees him and he describes it this way. He, had, he says, I see him on the street and I know it's him. He has no idea that I'm walking towards him. I can see that he can't stand up without the support of a building. He would appear drunk to most people. But to his dad, though, I know from past experience, sadly, he's on heroin, heavy on heroin. I go up to him, and he starts to turn his back on me. I don't even care. I just grab him and squeeze him as hard as I can. Can you imagine seeing your son in the shame and wanting to turn, but you just grab him and hug him? And so for a week, he became his son's shadow, wandering the streets during the day and sleeping on the banks just like his Son did at night. He grew a beard. He ate the sandwiches that were handed out at lunchtime every day from the church. He swatted away the rats at night. Meanwhile, his son got sick and was in and out of the hospital stealing to buy more drugs. And at one point, he told his son, If you die, your mom and I die with you. We might still be here breathing, but make no mistake, we will be dead inside. And when asked why the father did it, he says, the only thing I could think of was just to go there, to be with him and love him and show him how much his family loves him. That's how you bring heaven to earth, isn't it? You don't just have a feeling. 
you actually take action to go after the lost. And I wish I had a, 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 a story that ended well. I don't know what happens with this, but that, that father, that son knows without a shadow of a doubt that his father loves him, doesn't he? He understands that because of his actions, and that's exactly what Jesus does and did for us. He didn't just say these things. He came to earth in the flesh. He didn't just go to the streets for us. He went to the cross for us, didn't he? And he didn't just go to the cross for us. He actually went into hell and returned, resurrected for us, when we really think about that. And he continues to pursue us. And even when we see him coming and we want to turn our back and and act like we don't see him coming, he just grabs us and embraces us, doesn't he? Because he wants us to be home. He wants us to be redeemed and to be restored to who we've always supposed to be.